0: To the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. This is an incredibly intense scene. Um, I've watched this clip a few times over the course of this week as I've been writing my message. And I cringe every time she goes down on the mobile run. The first time I watched it, I actually had to like pause and like yelp. Um, It's just painful to watch, both because of how intense the physical crash itself is. And because even after just a few minutes of hearing from Molly, we know that this must be devastating to her on every level. Her life is built around being the absolute best. She is incredibly driven, she's intelligent, and at the beginning of this movie, she is one of the best mogul skiers in the entire United States. Motivated to greatness by her own desire to be the best, and judging from the clip, a lot of pushing from her father, Molly's accident on her run becomes not only physically, but emotionally catastrophic. If your whole life is built around a singular goal, and in a moment that goal is ripped away, how do you cope with that? Where is your purpose and worth when everything you've worked for is suddenly gone and can't be recovered? Narratives like this feel especially tragic to us because we, like the people we watch or read about, feel not only the physical loss, but the loss of purpose and identity. If you've trained your whole life to be one thing, and you've dedicated all of your time, money, and attention to an achievement and you lose it, then what does that mean for who you are? What is your worth if you cannot do or be the thing that you have given up everything else to be? And I think the scene was particularly poignant this week. Um, And what really stood out to me was that survey of what is the worst thing that could happen in sports. Having every sport be canceled and the Summer Olympics be postponed at least a year due to a global pandemic was probably not even an option that crossed our minds. And more relevant to our everyday lives is how everything else has suddenly been put on hold. With many of the things we normally spend our time on, work, school, church, spending time with our friends, even just getting coffee with someone, are either not available, unsafe to engage in, or have changed drastically. For all of the Zoom meetings I've been in in just the past week, it's still really weird to be giving this message to a camera and not be in the same room as all of you. We're living in a world where many of the things we enjoy and usually take for granted are just not options right now, as we try to keep ourselves, our loved ones, and our neighbors safe. And even though these restrictions on our normal lives are important, and are how we love our neighbor well in a very unprecedented time, it's caused a lot of understandable anxiety and panic for many of us. Our desire for some sense of control and stability can lead to weird or even selfish behavior. Like people hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer and selling it on eBay for hundreds of dollars when people really need it. And this kind of selfishness only exacerbates our sense of anxiety even further. In general, we really struggle when we're faced with any feeling of lack. And what's going on in the world around us has forced us to face those feelings a lot more than we would probably like to. We all have voids inside of ourselves that we're trying desperately to fill. And we cannot stand any feeling of space or emptiness there. We would much rather give our time and attention to something that will numb or distract us than be left with that space unfilled. And I know at different times in my life, I've tried to fill the voids of what my identity is with achievements in school or at work, with serving others when keeping up an image of busyness in front of other people. And when I use those things to fill that space, I allow them to form the core of my identity. I'm an achiever, I get things done, I help everyone without needing help in return. That's who I am. If I can't achieve those things or if I fail at them, the feeling of failure and emptiness is crushing. None of those identities are strong enough for me to rest my entire worth upon them. At this time, we may be realizing that the things we've been filling our soul with previously have not been something that could withstand the pressures of normal change, let alone a global crisis. And these questions about our identity and worth are always there. What is my worth? Am I worthy of significance or love or happiness? What do I do to attain those things to prove my worth to everyone else? Our need for worth and identity is significant. And what we choose to give our time and attention to will inform what is central to our identity. If we compare this to a dance, we can think of what we tie our worth to as our dance partner. A good dance should be full of creativity and freedom, and our partner's ability to dance with us, to move through the steps and act in concert with us is key for a dance that we can follow and actually enjoy. In our search for worth and identity, we sometimes choose to pair off with partners that force us to dance at a pace that we can't keep up with Or who don't match our steps or who are just doing a different dance entirely too often we are pairing off with the wrong partner in our desire for worthiness partners that cannot withstand the changes and challenges that life throws at us if we want to be in a dance that is life-giving that brings us joy and doesn't leave us feeling anxious trapped or like we're failing we need to step away from our wrong partners and find a partner we can actually rely But first we have to ask the question, who is our wrong partner? And the short and Sunday school answer is sin. But our understanding of sin is so often very limited and despairing. A dance is more than just avoiding bad moves. We need a good partner for the dance to be beautiful and to be safe for us to do. We tend to define sin as simply breaking rules or doing bad things. If we avoid doing obviously negative things and follow the rules we read in the Bible or that we're given in church, then we're all good. But in this way, our view of sin is completely restricted. It's only about avoidance or legalism without a chance for hope. It also traps us in only looking at ourselves as this view implies that our ability to successfully avoid doing bad things saves us. Not only is this untrue, it places a burden on us that we are not meant to carry as we are unable to secure our own salvation through what we do alone. In the book, The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, he talks about a man who holds this view, speaking to a group and describes him this way. It was clear that the young man was trapped in his need to justify himself and that things could only get worse and worse in his life until he recognized this. He would never be liberated to see his own flaws in their true light, to forgive those who had wronged him, or to humbly seek and receive forgiveness from others. This young man... Has not realized that he is stuck with the wrong partner. A wounded pride and a need to justify himself and control the behavior of others. While he may view himself as faultless and is overtly avoiding poor behavior, we can see that he is trapped in a life that looks extremely draining and hopeless. He is not free to recognize his faults as they truly are and grow in maturity to extend grace to others or receive the gift grace and forgiveness in return. If we define sin as only breaking rules and the solution as just avoiding bad things, we will both miss the bigger issues of sin that are more about how we define our worth and the larger picture of hope and redemption that God has provided. And while we do want to avoid doing overtly bad things that we know are sinful, this is just a small piece of how we view sin. In truth, the primary way to define sin is making good things into ultimate things. The very first commandment in Exodus defines this parameter of what sin is. You must not have any other God but me. We often skip over this commandment, telling ourselves that we aren't worshiping golden calves or physical idols, and so it doesn't really mean anything for us. But really, it is offering us a broader picture of what pulls us away from God and how we define sin nothing else can fill the place that God should. Sin is about seeking an identity apart from God and refusing to find our deepest, truest selves in relationship and service to God. Sin goes much deeper than how we usually define it, and at its core, it's more about where we're seeking our worth and our identity than just about bad behavior or breaking rules. If that's the case, then we can't break patterns of sin simply out of our own effort we will just trade whatever wrong partner we already had for the partner of our individual effort, which is possibly the least reliable partner of them all. If sin is born out of our pairing off with wrong partners, putting other things in the place where God should be, then we have a much more helpful solution to the problem of sin than just trying to avoid breaking any rules and be perfect. Instead, we can learn to see the source of our worth in God and our relationship to God through Jesus. We might define sin as simply breaking rules, but the language of sin gives it a much broader scope and offers us a way forward, as this quote from Barbara Brown Taylor um, explains really well. Contrary to the legal model, the essence of sin is not primarily the violation of laws, but a wrecked relationship with God, one another, and the whole created order. All sins are attempts to fill voids, wrote Simone Weil. Because we cannot stand the God-shaped hole inside of us, We try stuffing it full of all sorts of things, but only God may fill it. We cannot stand the emptiness of the God-shaped void inside of us. And try as we might to fill it with other things, only God can satisfy that place. In that first commandment in Exodus, God is not just giving a rule but a fact. God created us and printed the heart of the divine onto us. Of course, we long for God to fill that place. I think I've often looked at this commandment as nothing but a stern warning, and to some degree it is, but we can also see God's great affection and care for us there, telling us that nothing else can satisfy the place that God created, that it will only hurt us in the end to keep trying to put other things there. We cannot have anything else in the place of God because it is actively harmful to our souls. And God loves us is trying to help us avoid that kind of deep hurt within us sin is not just about breaking the rules or breaking the law sin is deeper than that it goes down to our very relationships ultimately sin and the resulting brokenness happens when we try to fill that god-shaped hole inside of ourselves with anything other than god even when the things we're using as fillers are good things And we may use more negative behaviors as a way to fill that void inside of us, but I don't think we really struggle to see why that's a problem. If someone commits murder or robs people to feel whole, I think we can easily see why that's an issue. What I think we struggle with a lot more is the idea of good things becoming ultimate things. When we establish our identities by making something that is generally considered positive more central to our significance, our purpose and our happiness than God. This is a problem not only because it goes against what God has told us, but because nothing else can withstand the pressure of being our source of worthiness. Our partner has to be strong enough to make it through the dance. Baby can't have her moment at the end of Dirty Dancing if Johnny isn't strong enough to actually lift her. That's just gonna end badly and no one's gonna like that movie. If we think about Molly Bloom from the clip we saw earlier, her worth and significance comes from being the best, specifically being the best female mogul skier, and we just saw how quickly that could be taken away. In other sports movies, we cheer for characters who are trying to win the big game or beat their opponents that they mean something, so that they won't remain in obscurity or so that the U.S. can defeat the Russians, because I think that's the plot of Rocky, probably. But if they lose or they fail somehow, then what's their worth? Achievements are not bad things on their own. They can be very good things. But achievements alone cannot sustain our need for worthiness and significance. In the Bible, we see many examples of people basing their worth and value off of something other than God. For example, in Genesis, we read about Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah, sisters who are put in competition with each other for Jacob's affection. In their desire for love and to be wanted by their husband, Rachel and Leah put having children at the center of their purpose and identities. Now, love and having children are good things, and it's not bad for them to desire these things. But both, sister, make good things into ultimate things here, and they take them way too far. In Genesis 29, we read, So Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, The Lord has noticed my misery, and now my husband will love me. She soon became pregnant again and gave birth to another son. She named him Simeon, for she said, The Lord heard that I was unloved and has given me another son. Then she became pregnant a third time and gave birth to another son. His na- he was named Levi, for she said, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me, since I have given him three sons. Once again, Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son. She named him Judah she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. Leah is desperate for a sense of love and belonging that Jacob cannot provide. To secure that love, she tries to have as many children as possible. And the names of each of Leah's children are significant here and reflect her desperation to uh, fill the void she feels. Reuben sounds like he has seen my misery in Hebrew. Simeon means one who hears. Levi sounds like the word for being attached or feeling affection for, and Judah is close to the Hebrew word for praise. Her language here, now my husband will love me, now he will feel affection for me, now I won't feel miserable, and at the end, now I'll praise God, shows her trying to fill this void every time she has another child, hoping that this will finally be the one where she secures the worth that she is so badly seeking. With Judah, she finally says she will praise God, It's only after she feels that God has held up the end of the bargain and gives her what she thinks she needs to be loved. The desire for love, affection, and for children is not a bad thing, but it has pushed Leah and also Rachel towards desperation. We read, when Rachel saw that she wasn't having any children for Jacob, she became jealous of her sister. She pleaded with Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Then Jacob became furious with Rachel. Am I God, he asked? He is the one who has kept you from having children. Then Rachel told him, take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me and through her, I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Rachel named him Dan for she said, God has vindicated me. He has heard my request and given me a son. Then Bilhah became pregnant again and gave Jacob a second son. Rachel named him Naphtali, for she said, I have struggled hard with my sister, and I'm winning. As Rachel watches Leah have more and more children, she begins to act out of fear and anger, as now this is a direct threat to Jacob's love for her and her source of worth. She would rather die or have her husband sleep with someone else who can bear children than continue being childless. By basing their worth off of their ability to have children, and to acquire Jacob's love and affection, Leah and Rachel become bitter, jealous, and ready to do anything to secure that, even if it means Jacob fathering children with someone else that they can claim as their own. Rachel and Leah's desire to fill the voids in themselves with Jacob's love, which is tempestuous at best and can never really satisfy, leads them to choices that produce deep brokenness in their lives. It sets up patterns of hatred and conflict that will haunt their family for years to come and ultimately pulls them both away from God. And while Rachel and Leah do make choices of their own volition here that make good things into ultimate things, I do want to point out an important feature of this story that we may miss. For these women, securing the love of their husband by having sons is not just their own personal way of finding worth, but one that was deeply shaped by their culture at the time. The idea of a woman's worth being found in childbearing was not something they uniquely came up with, but something that they would, would have been impressed upon them by their families and communities. Our cultures have their brokenness too. And for Rachel and Leah, their culture would have pointed to having sons and gaining the affection of their husband as what they should be basing their worth and identity on. Well, that particular idea is not as prominent in our culture today, there are still plenty of things that our culture is more than happy to encourage us to base our worth upon instead of God. Money, careers, romance, personal happiness, and many more. And this doesn't only happen when we believe in God. That God-shaped hole exists inside of us regardless, and we feel compelled to fill it. Our need for worth and something to root our identity in is deeply embedded within each of us. Tim Keller writes, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on, we essentially deify. Anything we base our worth upon and that we place at the center of our lives will take the place of God at the core of ourselves. But nothing else is solid enough to be the foundation of our worth and identities. Even if those things are good on their own, they will fail us as dance partners for our lives. For example, if our personal happiness is our dance partner, then what about when we're not happy? When things are out of our control and send us into anxiety and depression? Does that make us failures? What is happy enough for this to be our source of worth? And what if someone else's needs or boundaries directly limit our happiness? This will fail us as a source of worth and identity. If achievements are our dance partner, then what about when we fail? What about when we're only mediocre? What are we without our achievements? What about when we succeed and then there's nothing left? Achievements on their own will fail us as a source of worth and identity. If having a perfect family or being married is our dance partner, then what about when our families are broken and imperfect? When our spouse doesn't live up to all of our romantic expectations, when our kids act terrible no matter how many parenting books or podcasts you've consumed, when we snap and we lash out at our spouses, at our kids, our extended families, when we have yet to get engaged to date anyone. This is one that we struggle with especially as a culture, and some people put a perfect family life at the center of even their spiritual lives. Last summer, I was able to visit my friend May in Salt Lake City, and while I was there, I visited the main Mormon temple. And a huge portion of one of their visitor centers was dedicated to the importance of family and their beliefs. And it was clear by the time I left that this was at the core of everything. Family is the good thing made ultimate, and Jesus revolves around family life, not the other way around. And while this might sound really appealing to a lot of people because good family values are something that we encourage so much, I cannot imagine the pressure this puts on families to be perfect, on young people to get married when they really shouldn't, on parents to never have a difficult child or a difficult day with their children, on kids to never make the mistakes of selfishness and an experience that every kid makes eventually, on people who are single to conform and to despise their singleness, even though that is never what God intended for them. Marriage, family, and children are all good things, but they cannot be the one thing that we build our identities on. Good things are not the same as God, and they cannot withstand the pressure of being our source of worth. What voids are we trying to fill? What do we give our time, our money, and our attention to that reveals where we are entrusting our worth? In Mark 10, a rich man approaches Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus responds with this. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. This man, who we only know as a rich man, has founded his entire identity upon his money and possessions. And when Jesus asks him to lay that down, and to put God at the center, he can't do it. He happily follows all of the other rules he's been given, but he cannot give up the thing that he derives his very identity from. For us, it may not be money and possessions, but being a straight-A student or being a perfect parent or never needing anyone's help or some other thing that we have built our identities upon. What identity do we struggle to give up in order to follow Jesus completely? And once we've identified that wrong partner, How do we start to get back to the right one? Our usual view of our wrong partner of sin typically leads us to two kinds of responses. The first is apathy, or to just not care who we dance with. We might think that sorting through where we're deriving our worth from and how we're spending our time and attention is just too much work, or that it doesn't really matter, it's not worth caring about. It's easier to just keep doing what we've been doing, to let go of our usual patterns and seek out something else but even with this view we will still seek to fill that god-shaped void inside of ourselves we will just fill it with things that shouldn't be there the other response is sin management or to take the lead and control the dance ourselves in this view we follow all of the rules we avoid the overt sin issues that we or other people care about and we will get really mad at anybody who doesn't do the same. Because if we don't, then we think God won't love us or won't give us what we want. In this approach, it's all about what we do. Our obedience is what leads to our salvation, and we can barter that obedience to get exactly what we want. And neither of these approaches is great, and they don't lead us to having a better dance partner. They simply continue to put the focus on ourselves. Choosing to not care who our dance partner is, or trying to be the one in control of the dance, won't resolve the issue of the wrong partner. We will continue to fill the voids of our lives with things that cannot withstand the pressures and changes of life. When we are pursuing good things as ultimate things, we will start to lose sight of actual love, generosity, and kindness in the process. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about this idea in a fictitious correspondence between two demons. We want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel wherewith to heap the altar of the future, every real gift which is offered them in the present. Not caring about what we're basing our identity on trying to secure our worth through what we do pushes us away from actually growing closer to Jesus and to others. We are simply filling that place only God can fill with substitutes that cannot satisfy, and in doing so we are unable to enjoy the good things that we are trying to use in place of God. When we try to take the lead and secure our own worth through what we do, we end up actually avoiding Jesus more, because if we can do it ourselves, then we don't have any reason to involve Jesus, especially when things are messy and hard. We focus more on trying to look perfect and have others do the same, thinking that that is going to be what will make us feel whole and worthy. Jesus addresses this approach many times with the Pharisees. In Luke 7, Jesus is invited into the home of a Pharisee named Simon for dinner, and a woman who is known to have a negative reputation comes in with a jar of expensive perfume kneels at Jesus' feet and begins to weep, kissing his feet and pouring perfume on them. Simon is horrified, thinking that Jesus should know better than to allow himself to be touched by such a terrible sinner. Jesus responds to Simon with a parable about the forgiveness of debts, and then he does this. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little only shows little love. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisee here is much like the young man I mentioned earlier, trapped in his own self-righteousness and unable to extend grace or forgiveness to this woman that he only sees as a sinner, someone who has not followed all of the rules and who does not appear as perfect as he believes he does. When Jesus allows himself to be touched by her, Simon is horrified that someone who claims to be a holy teacher would allow himself to be defiled by someone so distasteful. But Simon is blind to his own faults and does not see that he has made himself the leader of his dance, trying to win his salvation by maintaining a spotless image. And in doing so, he is unable to experience the gift of love and grace that he is witnessing in front of him. The woman, on the other hand, knows where her true identity lies. She is not held captive by the wrong partner of sin and shame, but knows that she is forgiven and loved by God. It's out of this identity that she is able to walk into a Pharisee's home, who she knows would judge and exclude her, and face the sneers and ridicule of this religious leader in order to show the love and praise she feels towards Jesus. She knows that she has been forgiven, that she is loved, and that she is in relationship with God. And so out of that love, she weeps and pours sweet perfume on Jesus, pouring out her praise and affection to him. God's desire for us is not to stop caring about our identities, to despair over our sin, or to try to keep up a spotless image, but instead to be intimately connected to the true vine, to experience true grace and love and for our flourishing to come out of that love. The woman who pours perfume on Jesus' feet is not doing it because she thinks it will save her, but because she knows that she has already been forgiven. Her identity is built on being a loved child of God, and her actions radiate out of that connection to Jesus. When we dance with our right partner, when our worth and identity is founded in Jesus, Our obedience flows out of that intimate connection with Him. We are no longer filling voids with things that will not satisfy, but resting in the love of God that can withstand all things, that will fully satisfy us and produce a life of flourishing. This is the dance that God intended for us, nothing less. God is a patient and gracious partner, and God does not expect that we are perfect dancers for us to be able to do this on our own even when we stumble or struggle god patiently waits for us helps us back to our feet and brings us back into the dance no other partner can hold all of our worth but god is able to hold us completely no matter our particular flaws or struggles we have a very good dance partner one we can trust in completely and one who will gently lovingly lead us Through even the most complicated steps. We just have to choose to step into the dance with our right partner and to keep practicing that dance. And as we learn to break away from our wrong partners and learn to dance with the right one, I think it's helpful for us to spend some time deeply reflecting on a few questions. First, what are the voids that we are trying to fill and what fillers are we using? What are we missing And how are we trying to fill that space in our lives right now? We may be filling that space with things that we know are bad for us, but it may be that we need to reflect more deeply on how much we're filling up our time and attention with things that are good, but we are treating as ultimate. Until we've spent time really digging into these questions around who our wrong partners are, it will be really challenging to shift our time and attention appropriately. It's also important to know that this process is dynamic. There are seasons where we struggle more to stay connected to God, and seasons where it's much easier to avoid our wrong partners and remain rooted in Jesus. It is still valuable to know what our potential wrong partners are, so that we're less likely to fall back into this pattern. For example, I know that one of my consistent wrong partners is trying to prove my worth through how productive I am and how much I can accomplish. And there are times when I am much better at following God's lead and resting in the love of Jesus, knowing that what I do is not really my source of worth. And then there are times when I get really busy, when I'm stressed, and when I fall back into the pattern of trying to prove my worthiness through what I do. But knowing that this is an especially hard area for me helps me to plan well, to make choices about my time and commitments that will help me to remain rooted in God's love and remain in a pace of life that's better for my health and my flourishing long-term. And once we've identified our wrong partners, we'll need to start practicing dancing with the right one and become more used to that. Remember, this is not about us trying to follow rules or be perfect. Our obedience does not earn our salvation or our desires. Instead, we need to learn to spend time with our right partner engaging in practices that connect us deeply to God and shift our sense of identity and worth entirely onto God's love and grace towards us. God's intention for us is not to live in despair, but to know that we are loved and forgiven and live a life of obedience and flourishing out of that, out of that identity. And we talk a lot about different spiritual practices here at DR. Um, I know we discuss discussed silence, solitude, daily offices, Sabbaths, prayer, and others, and all of these are deeply important to maturing in our spiritual and emotional lives and growing closer to our right partner. But one that we haven't gotten into as much that I think will be especially helpful here is fasting. Fasting is generally a practice that we have ignored in modern churches for a variety of reasons, but I think it's an especially relevant idea in a culture that is obsessed with consumption and instant gratification. This is a practice of intentionally disengaging from the fillers in our soul to allow that space to be filled and nourished by the Holy Spirit instead. By purposefully opening up ourselves to the feelings of space and lack that we normally try to avoid, we're able to accomplish a few things. First, we start to break the hold of the flesh and the things of this world that keep us focused on ourselves and intentionally open up that space for God instead. Second, we're forced to fully lean into God's presence and provision during this time, clearing our minds from the things that usually fill up and distract our attention. Third, we practice denying our own desires for instant gratification. And so when it happens to us in other areas, we're much better at dealing with it well. If we are used to not getting what we want as soon as we want it, it does not present as much of a challenge to our patience and gentleness towards others when it happens outside of our control. And all of this is in direct contrast to the messages we usually receive that tell us to fill our time and our mental space with more and more distractions and causes, goals and achievements that ultimately do not produce fruitfulness within us. Fasting helps us practice not getting what we want and actually facing the space within ourselves that can only be satisfied by God. Rather than fill that space with numbing and distractions, fasting has us sit with it, letting it be filled with God's presence. We let go of our wrong partners and step into a dance with our right partner without distractions. This week, I encourage you to pick a day and take some intentional time to fast. Usually what we fast from is food, and I think that's generally what we should stick with because the absence of food is something we'll actually miss and we can use that space that hunger creates as a prompt to open ourselves up to God in prayer and resting in God's love. A traditional fast is from sunup to sundown, so about 12 hours. So you might do this by skipping breakfast and lunch and breaking your fast with a late dinner in the evening. And rather than give in to your cravings and immediate desires to be physically satisfied, we can use those physical prompts as a time to pray or do a daily office resisting our impulse to focus on our own selves and instead focus on God. And since you will likely have some extra time in your day that you would normally be spending eating or preparing food, you might consider having some specific things you'd like to pray for and use that time. Maybe an issue you want to address in your life or a decision that you want God's wisdom and direction in. And don't feel like you have to start off with multiple days of fasting or doing something longer than that 12-hour sun-up to sundown time frame. Just taking a day to fast is already an important step towards breaking away towards our, from our tendency towards selfishness and gratification. And if you'd like more resources and guidance on fasting, I highly encourage you to check out the sections on fasting on the website practicingtheway.org, which has a ton of great information on lots of different spiritual disciplines. And it's all presented in a format that's really helpful and relevant. And I hope that this practice can be a source of comfort and nourishment for our community as we all adjust to a very stressful time and one that helps us adjust long-term or helps us long-term to break free of our patterns of selfishness and rest in God's presence. Right now, we're in an especially distressing time. While nothing is ever really in our control, this is a time that really throws that into sharp relief for us. No one is in control when there's a global pandemic. Our need for comfort, for rest, for peace beyond what we can supply ourselves is really high right now. And while our instinct may be to pull inward on ourselves, it is so important for us to refocus our sense of worth and identity on God's love and care for us now. Only God is the right partner for our dance. Nothing else can hold the weight of who we are, especially when we are faced with huge amounts of uncertainty and anxiety. While we learn how to dance in concert with God and allow God to take the lead, we know that even when we waver or when we struggle, God is steadfast. God has loved us since the beginning, and God has not stopped pursuing us in any season. And I want to leave you with a passage from Romans that I have found really comforting this week. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us If we are having trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death no despite all these things overwhelming victory is ours through christ who loved us and i am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from god's love neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither our fears for today nor worries about tomorrow not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, um, we just we really lift up our anxieties to you. We cast our cares upon you, God. Um, We know that you are true and steadfast, Lord. You are what we can build our identities upon. You will not waver, Lord. Um, And you will be there for us even when we struggle, when we doubt, Lord. Um, When it's hard for us to believe that you forgive us, Lord. We know that you are there in every season with us, God. Holding us close and leading us through it, God. We pray that we're able to step away from our wrong partners and move towards this dance with you, Lord, this new life and flourishing that you desire for us, that you welcome us into joyfully, no matter what our past or what our struggles have been, Lord. We thank you, God. We pray for your protection and your healing in our world right now. We pray for your comfort and peace as we seek to lead and love well in this time, God. We love you in your son's name, amen. Thank you for joining the damascus road podcast our mission is to follow jesus together by being with god loving everyone transforming people developing leaders growing new ministries and changing the world you can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com